Um, good afternoon. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone to Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Um, today, um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Uh, Fran Grodstein, who's joining us um, from, uh, from Harvard and Brigham Women's Hospital. Uh, Fran did her um, graduate studies in epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health and um, has, uh, is now a professor of medicine at Brigham Women's Hospital in Harvard Medical School and a professor of epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. Um, her research activities have focused on healthy aging, and um, she has contributed greatly to our knowledge in that area with over 165 manuscripts, original manuscripts and many uh, book chapters. Um, she serves on the editorial board of numerous journals um, and has really um, uh, contributed to our knowledge of um, healthy aging. Uh, particularly in women. Um, she is, has been uh, involved with the Nurses' Health Study for many years and is currently um, the Director of Research for the Nurses' Health Study and will be talking with us today about um, some new opportunities um, for research and collaboration. Um, it's been our pleasure at, at Dartmouth to, to do um, some collaborative work with the Nurses' Health Study and linkage uh, with claims data that um, Fran will tell us a little bit more about. Um, I have to read a few things, and I, and I should have actually already welcomed not only those of you in the room, but people um, who are watching remotely as well. Um, Dr. Grodstein does not have any financial interests in the topic being spoken of here. Hopefully she does have financial interests. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that statement always just seems a little bit strange. Um, she reports that she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. Uh, she attests that she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect um, to uh, this activity. Um, so welcome, Fran. Thank you very much. It is um, a pleasure to be here on a beautiful fall day, lots of uh, colors around. Um, so I'm going to sort of talk to you broadly about the Nurses' Health Study. Um, I'm actually primarily here today to um, encourage and invite collaborations with the cohort. As Anna said, um, over the last two years, we've established you know, a really beautiful collaboration um, with uh, TDI, with a primary focus on cancer research. Um, so I'll start out giving you some background on the Nurses' Health Study and um, what the cohort is and what kind of information we have. Um, since you know we are all uh, either clinicians or researchers, I figured I had to show some results. Um, so I you know sort of selected um, one of our sort of primary areas of research in cancer, and will um, present you some results just to give you a flavor of the kind of work that we've been doing. Um, and then I'll talk about the collaboration with TDI and the linkage we now have um, between the nurses' health study data and Medicare claims data. Um, and some of the preliminary work we've done using that linkage, um, which will hopefully give all of you impetus to think about new ways to use the cohort to better understand you know, cancer etiology, cancer um, treatment and survival, and, um, and health services. Um, so that's uh, sort of my broad outline, so I will... Um, so just by way of introduction, so I have spent um, my entire career, now about uh, 25 years, working with the Nurses' Health Study. Um, the study was initiated in 1976. Um, it includes 120,000 women who were 30 to 55 years of age when the cohort began. Um, the study was actually initiated um, by, um, it was the original investigator was interested in oral contraceptives. Um, so he was realizing in the early 1970s that there was this growing cohort of relatively young women um, who were taking large doses of exogenous hormones for you know, many years. And while that has obvious benefits in the short term, um, was interested in tracking what the long-term health effects of you know, high doses of hormones for many years might be, and specifically breast cancer. 
Um, so the cohort was actually initiated to track the relationship of oral contraceptive use to breast cancer. Um, there is kind of like an interesting little backstory. Um, so his first idea was to follow physicians' wives. Um, with the, uh, he actually modeled it after. There's a very famous British doctor study, which was a study which identified um, cigarette smoking as being related to cancer and other chronic diseases. And he had done some work with the British doctor study. So when he came back to Boston and wanted to start a study of women, he said, okay, we could do physicians' wives. Um, so he identified, you know, physicians through directories in different states and actually sent out a questionnaire to all these physicians asking them to give the questionnaire to their wives and then have their wives return the questionnaire to us. Um, I will say us, um, although obviously um, in 1970s I was not yet working on the cohort, so it's kind of the royal we. <laughs> Um, so he got back all these questionnaires from the physicians' wives, um, and then you know did a second mailing directly to the wives. Um, now that he had their information, um, so we did the second mailing and got all of these questions from the wives saying, you know, I never saw a previous questionnaire. I don't know what the study is. What are you talking about? Um, and it turned out that um, the physicians, believing they knew everything possible about their wives, had filled out the questionnaire for them and sent it back to us. Um, so at that point, he said, maybe going through physicians is not the best idea, and had the idea to go directly to nurses. Um, so that is how the study started. Um, when there was a, that early recognition, this would have to be a very large study. Um, to track chronic diseases over long periods of time and to look at the effect of exposures over decades. Um, so it is a male study. Virtually the entire study is conducted by male. Um, originally the women were in the 11 largest states in the U.S., although obviously over time they have moved um, and now live in almost all U.S. states. Um, but So since 1976, the same group of 120,000 women um, has returned questionnaires to us every two years. Um, so we now actually just, um, in 2016, celebrated the 40th anniversary of the cohort. Um, about two-thirds of women are still alive. Roughly a third of them have died. Um, but we have maintained um, about 90% follow-up. Um, you know, part of the reason for choosing nurses was that they could give such good health information, even on a mailed questionnaire. Um, and they also really have understood the importance of sticking with the study. Um, so I think, you know, that initial choice of tracking nurses was really sort of providential. Um, and, you know, we have had phenomenal participation, phenomenal follow-up. Um, I'll go through over the next few minutes and tell you some more of the information um, that they have given us. Um, and we really have been able to conduct this study with high efficiency by virtue of having a population of health professionals. Um, so, you know, as I said, even our initial response rate was extremely high. Um, so the recruitment was just done by this initial mailing of a questionnaire, um, and it had about 70% response just to that initial mailing. Um, so it was easy to recruit them. It's been easy to retain them. I'll just give you a sense. I don't know if any of you are starting studies these days, um, but those numbers are already pretty dramatically different. Um, we actually are up to Nurses' Health Study 3 um, is our most recent cohort we've been trying to initiate. Um, so we've been doing recruitment now for the last five years, and these are now nurses in their 20s and 30s we're trying to bring in to do have a more, more focus on earlier life health and reproductive health. Um, and with five years, we now are only at about 30,000 participants, you know, compared to in the 1970s, being able to get 120,000 in one shot. Um, you know, it's just much more difficult now to find people. Um, people don't answer mail. They don't answer their email. You can't find their cell phones. Um, and I think, you know, there's just a sense people these days are busier, so they're, even the ones we recruit, it's very hard to follow. Um, so it is nice to have, you know, this 
continued population of really dedicated participants um, who've just maintained incredible enthusiasm with the cohort, which has made it possible to do a lot of the things that we've done over the years with them. Um, so this is just a sense of the kind of information we've collected. Um, so again, the women have gotten these questionnaires every two years since 1976, when they were 30 to 55. So they're now mostly in their 70s and 80s. So we have continual information from them, you know, kind of from midlife to older ages. Um, I'm going to show you a, a page of the questionnaire in a minute. Um, so it's a, a six-page questionnaire. We've been pretty religious about limiting the length, so we never let it go over six pages. Um, although you'd be surprised how much information you can squeeze into six pages. Um, I will say, over the last sort of ten years or so, they've gotten older. Um, we have allowed ourselves to break that six-page rule because the font used to be really, really small. <laughs> so you know, as we've aged and the nurses have aged, we have uh, increased the font size. <laughs> Um, but so we have continuous information from them on general lifestyle factors, cigarette smoking, body mass index. Um, as I said, the initial interest of the study was all contraceptives. And as the women aged, um, we transitioned into postmenopausal hormone therapy. Um, we have regular information on their physical activity levels. Um, we've also done lots of work with diet and vitamin supplements. Um, we administer something called a food frequency questionnaire, which was actually developed by our group. Um, so every four years since the 1980s, we've asked them extensive information about um, their diet as well as use of vitamin supplements. Um, and it is a fairly unique cohort in having that extensive data over so many years on their diet. Um, we do ask a limited information on medications and really just in broad categories, um, but we have asked them about NSAID use, um, and actually the, um, the work I'll show you that we've done um, uh, in cancer is all on um, NSAID use. Um, but we have asked some other broad categories. More recently, we started asking about antidepressant use, um, we ask about um, antihypertensives, um, cholesterol medications. So we have probably about 15 or so different medication groups that we have asked about very generally. Um, obviously a lot with health behaviors, a pretty big variety. We ask about their use of screening, um, both cancer screening as well as um, getting, you know, sort of lipid screening, um, we've done, you know, we also do work in, um, in melanomas. We've asked about sun exposure. Um, since they're nurses, we've actually done quite a lot of work on uh, shift work and looking at circadian variations and even some uh, look at melatonin um, and how that relates. We've done a lot of that actually in relation to cancer and how the women who have had rotating night shifts, you know, that may impact their cancer risk. Um, since it is such a large cohort, although the original focus was breast cancer, um, we've obviously capitalized on the group to look at. We now follow um, most major cancers as well as most major chronic diseases. We do a whole variety of cardiovascular diseases. We do kidney diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure. Um, we have a, a whole page. Um, there's probably now about 30 or so different chronic diseases that we track in the women. Um, and again, the information we get from them, um, I'm going to show you a little bit of the validation work we do. Um, but the information they provide you know, is incredibly valid you know, because of their health profession. Um, just one more additional piece. In the last sort of decade or so, we've also become much more interested in psychosocial factors and quality of life. Um, we have got psychologists and psychiatrists who are working with us now. Um, we have regularly administered the SF36. Um, we also do work with that. We track their social networks, um, caregiving as well as caregiving stress. Um, we've looked at sort of inherent characteristics such as their levels of optimism and resiliency. Um, we have also started asking about um, activity, 
activities of daily living as well as instrumental activities of daily living. Um, and then we regularly administer depression scales, um, anxiety scales, um, and we've done this, you know, I'd say in the last sort of 15 to 20 years, um, but nonetheless have regular measures also of these um, quality of life factors as well as um, mental health issues. So this, oh, yeah? So we asked them about their caregiving. So we asked them if they take care of a sick spouse, if they take care of grandchildren, um, and how much time they spend doing it. And then secondarily, if they are a caregiver, um, we ask them, you know, sort of how much um, pleasure they get out of that versus how much stress. So it's their own caregiving, not care provided to them. And uh, I'll just add, please feel free to uh, interrupt at any time with questions. Um, so I don't know if this gives people like SAT nightmares when they look at this, but um, so our, our questionnaires do look like, you know, those old SAT tests we all used to take, um, but it is, a, you know, so it's a scannable technology, so it lets us um, do data entry, you know, again, so we have 120,000 women answering questionnaires every two years. Um, so that the scannable technology lets us enter that information quite accurately and quite efficiently. Um, but you can see this is one of our old ones. We pack um, a lot of questions on a page. Um, so just to give you a sense of how we track the diseases, um, it, it does vary across diseases. For cancers, however, it is quite uniform. Um, so we ask them on the questionnaire to let us know if they've been diagnosed with, you know, we have a whole list of cancers on the questionnaire, um, and to tell us if they've been diagnosed with that cancer, you know, the same thing is true for other chronic diseases in the last two years. Um, if they say yes, we then write back to them and ask for permission to access their medical records. Um, the vast majority do give us permission, and then we go to the hospital where the diagnosis was made and get their medical records. Um, that allows us both to confirm the diagnosis, but also to abstract a lot of specific information um, about the cancer. Um, so we do then get information on stage and grade and histology. Um, so we have a, you know, a fair amount of, you know, detailed and obviously accurate information on their cancer diagnosis. And again, the same for many other chronic diseases. Um, since it is a self-reported study, though, we are quite rigorous about doing validation studies. So in general, you know, we don't just ask a question and assume they're going to answer it correctly. Um, we'll usually do, you know, a sub-study where we validate the information. Um, so this is just a few examples. In the very early years of the study, um, we did do a validation of self-reported weight. Um, for this, so we took their questionnaire report of their weight, and then we went to some of the local nurses who happened to live in Boston and asked them to come into our offices, and we actually measured um, their weight. Um, you know, people might have guessed that women are misreporting their weight, but um, <laughs> in fact, you know, between our measurements and their report on the questionnaire, we found a correlation over 90%. Um, and we actually think, you know, so obviously it was some time between the questionnaire report and us actually getting into the office. Um, so we actually think that most of the um, inability to get to 100% correlation was that their weight had probably changed um, in that time. As, you know, most of us know, most of us are gaining weight all the time, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, we also have done extensive validation of our diet questionnaire. Um, this is just one example. So we, um, we looked at vitamin E intake based on the dietary questionnaire and then got blood samples from some of the women and found a correlation of about 0.8 between reported vitamin E intake and, and plasma levels of vitamin E. Um, and then this is just one example of a disease. So as I said, for all cancers and for many other diseases, we do get medical records for the confirmation. Um, but diabetes, for example, is just so incredibly common, um, it would be virtually impossible to get medical records for every new case of diabetes in the cohort. Um, so sometime, you know, 
I know, I'd say after 10 years or so, when the diabetes cases were really building up, um, instead of getting medical records, we did, you know, we compared some of the medical records we had to the um, self-reports. Um, and indeed, I mean, 98% of the women who self-reported diabetes had it confirmed in their medical records. Um, so we now do not get medical records for all of the diabetes cases. Um, although part of the validation, so we do send a specific questionnaire for the women report diabetes. We actually ask some questions about the diagnosis and how the diagnosis was made and what tests were done and what those test results were. And even for that specific level of detail, um, the women's reports are extremely valid compared to the medical records. Um, so again, having that population of nurses really has advantages in terms of the validity of their reporting of health information. Um, so another really nice aspect of having nurses, um, so despite the fact that we, we never see the participants, we have an extensive biorepository. Um, we do have blood samples from a third of participants, so about 35,000 of the women. We collected blood samples um, at two points in time, about 10 years apart. We simply mailed the women a, a blood collection kit, told them to have one of their colleagues draw the blood and mail it back to us. Um, so at, at very little expense and very little effort, we literally were able to collect 35,000 blood samples from the women. Um, so, you know, that enables us to do, you know, quite a lot of biological research as well, um, you know, from genetics to, you know, a whole variety of plasma biomarkers. Um, in cancer specifically, we've done, you know, quite a lot of genetic work. We have GWAS um, done on almost all of the cancer cases in the cohort who provided blood. So roughly a third of the women who had incident cancers um, have a full GWAS done. Um, and we're now starting to do additional omics um, with the blood samples. Um, we were just funded for um, ovarian, breast, um, and colorectal cancer to do metabolomics and try to understand metabolic signatures you know, that are underlying disease development. Um, we've had a few other sort of original um, collections. We have toenails um, from about 40,000 women um, that lets you measure trace metals. Um, we, along with the blood collection, we also did a urine collection, so we can look at urine biomarkers as well. Um, in the mid-1990s or so, we started collecting tumor blocks um, from the women who reported cancers. Um, and over time, we, we're now doing uh, sort of the tumor block collection um, for about 15 or so different cancers. Um, we started out with uh, breast and colorectal cancer, so we actually now have over 10,000, um, you know, breast cancers for whom we have their tissue blocks. Um, but, you know, we have quite large numbers for many of the other cancers as well. Um, we also study benign breast disease, um, and I know someone I met with this morning asked me, so we, we do have um, the uh, pathologic samples for benign breast disease as well. Um, we also started, I think probably 15 or so years ago, we collect um, mammography films and then we use them to measure breast density. So we're also doing quite, you know, from quite a lot of the women, we have information on breast density um, and have looked at that, you know, both to understand determinants of breast density and obviously also to understand how breast density predicts breast cancer. Um, so, you know, there really is, between the questionnaires and the biospecimens, you know, a, a huge amount of information available. Um, and, you know, we also have the sources that allow us to look at um, a lot of other information. This is a list of all the cancers in the nurses where we are currently um, doing the tumor block collections. Um, and, you know, depending on the cancer and the funding we have, we have started, you know, doing things looking at, you know, somatic cancer, somatic mutations in the tissue. Um, we're doing a lot. We're starting to um, look at gene expression. Um, in some of the cancers, especially the breast, we do get some normal tissue, so we can look at, you know, both um, normal tissue, you know, as well as the, the cancer tissue. Um, so this has really opened up, you know, quite a lot of work for us in understanding the biology um, of cancer. 
Um, all right, so now I will um, switch into, you know, just a little taste of some of the research that we've done. Um, I mean, this is just a, a small list of some of the primary work we've done in cancer. Virtually all of the, I mean, I'll, I'll show you a little bit of cancer survival, but most of the work we've done um, has been on incident cancers. Um, you know, that's really where her strength has been. Um, and it, it's been harder to do cancer survival because we, we tend not to get a lot of information um, post-diagnosis, um, especially on things like treatment. It's hard to get much detail on treatment since we only contact the women every two years. Um, but that's what we'll talk about that at the end because obviously that's where having the claims data um, really should allow us to do a lot more work in cancer survival. Um, so as I mentioned, we have GWAS done on most of the cancers, and you know for all of them there are controls as well. Um, so we've done quite a lot of research into the um, genetic predict predictors of cancers. Um, as I said. Um, since we have the information on shift work, we've also done, you know, quite a lot of work on sort of shift work and circadian rhythms and how that might predict cancer development. Um, we did one of the original studies showing that um, moderate, even moderate alcohol intake increases the risk of breast cancer. Um, in addition to the exogenous estrogens, we have also used the blood samples to look at plasma estrogens um, and other plasma hormones, and especially how they relate to uh, breast cancer risk. Um, and we're now um, trying to do prediction models, where in addition to sort of the standard risk factors, if you incorporate plasma biomarkers, if we might be able to do a better job um, in risk prediction in breast cancer. Um, we've also done quite a lot of work in vitamin D. Um, and have actually, you know, inspired, there's now a large trial, the VITAL trial, um, which is um, testing, you know, vitamin D, vitamin D and placebo um, in the development of cardiovascular disease and cancers. And a lot of the work that we did in vitamin D and chronic disease had helped inspire that trial. Um, and then finally, I will now show you um, some of the work we've done looking at aspirin um, and colorectal and breast cancers. Um, and that in particular has taken advantage of the, the range of information we have, uh, you know, both from the questionnaires and, and the biospecimens. Um, so we, we started now, you know, over 10 years ago with an interest in aspirin for the prevention of colorectal cancer. Um, so um, I'm going to show you the, a few of the different areas we've looked at this in for colorectal cancer. So this was, um, this is data just on um, colorectal adenoma. Um, we do look at, you know, multiple precancerous conditions, including uh, colorectal adenoma. Um, and this looks at the duration of aspirin use and how that predicts development of adenoma. Um, so this is obviously with increasing duration of aspirin use, um, and aspirin is one of the variables. We've asked women, you know, every two to four years about their use of aspirin, um, and you can see it's a pretty nice linear relationship. Um, so with each uh, increase in the duration of aspirin use, um, the risk of adenoma um, decreases. This primary? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and we've also looked at that, this for, um, for colorectal cancer itself. And again, you see very similar relationship with increasing duration of aspirin use, steadily decreasing risk of incident colorectal cancer. Um, and in, in colorectal cancer, we have also done this a little bit with survival, um, with survival primarily being defined purely by mortality. Um, so. On the left is colorectal cancer-specific survival, um, and then on the right, this is overall mortality rate, so regardless of your cause of death. Uh, but you can see for both of them, um, the, the red line is for uh, the women who used aspirin. Um, this is prior to the cancer diagnosis. Um, and the blue is the women who did not use cancer. So you can see, so this is a statistically significant um, better survival after colorectal cancer diagnosis um, in the women who are using aspirin. Um, and there is also significantly better, you know, overall survival, um, regardless of the cause of death. 
Um, so, you know, quite strong evidence that aspirin not only prevents cancer development, but also improves survival from colorectal cancer. It is any dose, yes. I didn't, I didn't, just because of the time, um, we have also looked at dose, and there is a dose response, so that the, you know, women who are using more aspirin have um, lower, even lower colorectal cancer and better survival. Um, but here, so we also took advantage of the biospecimens. Um, so we looked at, at COX-2 expression in the tumor, and then... Um, so this top line, you know, is for all colorectal cancer, and then we divided the cases by whether they were COX-2 positive or COX-2 negative. Um, so, I mean, obviously you can already see the results, but the hypothesis here was that if you saw stronger results for the COX-2 positive cancers, um, that that was pretty good evidence of causation. Because um, presumably the primary mechanism is COX-2, and how aspirin modulates COX-2. Um, so, you know, these results really just turned out beautifully showing that um, the protection against colorectal cancer for aspirin users is really focused in the tumors that are COX-2 positive. Um, so this is a way to use a biospecimen to help prove causality, even in the context of an observational study where there's obviously issues of confounding. Um, and we have seen this consistently. Um, so this is now looking at, you know, only in patients diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Um, we looked at colorectal cancer-specific mortality according to their aspirin use and according to COX-2 expression of the tumor. Um, and again, you see similar results. So this is now... Um, you know, survival in colorectal cancer patients where the benefits are, you know, strictly focused in the women who have the uh, COX-2 positive cancers. Um, so, you know, mechanistically, it's showing how aspirin is working um, and also, again, helps establish that this is most likely a causal relationship. Um, the, the work we did in aspirin and colorectal cancer did, in fact, inspire um, several randomized trials of aspirin um, and did just now lead to um, aspirin being specifically recommended um, for prevention of colorectal cancer as well as treatment. Now... We have taken this a few steps further. So obviously the problem with aspirin is it does have some um, complications. There is, you know, even a fairly low dose is you do get more GI bleeding um, among the women. Well, women, women and men. Um, I only think about women. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you would want, this is sort of an area where, you know, sort of the precision medicine could come into play. And if you could identify those who are most likely to benefit from aspirin use, um, you know, it would be a way to minimize the, the risks and help the balance of risk and benefits. So instead of giving aspirin to people who ultimately won't benefit from it but will incur risks, um, can we find a way to identify those most likely to benefit? Um, so this is some genetic work we did. Um, so we took um, a SNP, which is predictive of colorectal cancer, um, and it is also um, a SNP implicated um, in that sort of pathway by which aspirin should work. Um, so we looked um, at at the you know, different genotypes. Um, and this is the, the genotype that best predicts colorectal cancer risk. Um, and you know, we did see, so this um, is a statistically significant interaction, um, such that the women with the uh, GT or, or pure TT genotype um, do have a greater benefit from aspirin than the women 
um, who have the, the GG genotype. Um, so this is just very early work that we only fairly recently published. Um, but it is the kind of exercise you'd want to go through. And if you can identify those women whose you know, genetic risk of colorectal cancer um, predicts that they will most benefit from aspirin use, um, you know, that those would be the people you give specifically aspirin to. Um, so, the colorectal cancer was the first area that we did the aspirin research in, um, but more recently we have been also looking at aspirin and breast cancer. Um, it's not quite as nice a story for aspirin and breast cancer, um, but we, we did do research which found um, that, that women who used aspirins um, have, you know, a range of you know, sort of a 10 to 30 percent reduced risk of breast cancer. Um, and similarly to the colorectal cancer, there did appear to be a survival benefit. So they both had reduced risk of developing breast cancer, um, as well as increased risk of survival after a breast cancer diagnosis. Um, and again, we did that, you know, just by looking at breast cancer-specific mortality in the women with breast cancer. Um, so similar to colorectal cancer, we also have the COX-2 status on the breast cancers. Um, so we did first look at um, how the COX-2 status of the cancer was related to prognostic factors in breast cancer. Um, and I know there's a lot of numbers here, but um, you know, sort of the brief message is that the, um, the COX-2 positive cancers um, consistently have worse prognostic factors than the COX-2 negative cancers. Um, making it, you know, particularly important to try to understand prevention as well as survival. Um, however, um, when, you know, we looked at the same sort of the interaction between the COX-2 status of the tumor and use of aspirin um, for breast cancer, you know, so for colorectal cancer, you know, really worked out beautifully that the, you know, the COX-2 positive tumors were consistently better protected um, with aspirin use. For breast, that's not the case. Um, so we looked both at incident breast cancers um, as well as, you know, subsequent mortality after breast cancer by the COX-2 status of the tumor. And there we saw absolutely no difference between the COX-2 positive and the COX-2 negative aspirin. Um, you know, similarly reduced risk of breast cancer incidence um, and increased the likelihood of survival um, regardless of the COX-2 status of the tumor. Um, so either you know, aspirin's not related to breast cancer or it's working through a mechanism other than COX-2, although it's not um, immediately obvious what alternate mechanisms might be. Um, but nonetheless, this has led to, um, there is now um, a randomized trial starting of aspirin use for the, um, for improved survival among breast cancer patients. Um, I think they're only like sort of just barely beginning recruitment for it. Um, all right, so now I will switch to the, um, the last part of the talk um, where I'm going to sort of discuss the, um, the recent collaboration we've had with Anatostasin and TDI um, linking our cohort data to Medicare claims data. Um, so as of, and I think the sort of, you know, like late 1990s and early 2000s, um, the women were entering their sort of late 60s and early 70s. Um, so about probably three or so years ago now, um, actually vir by virtue of a family relationship, um, one of our investigators is a cousin of um, one of the uh, uh, statisticians who used to be at uh, TDI and worked with the claims data. So he kind of, uh, the two of them hooked us together. Um, and we realized that, you know, the combination of claims data with, you know, the extensive information we had on all these women around the country for so many years could really provide, you know, incredibly unique resource that could advance research, you know, in a wide variety of areas. Um, so two years ago, we had, we got funding from NCI um, to do the linkage. Um, so we do now, starting in 2006, um, have claims data linked to our nurses' health study data. Um, 
It did result overall across the years. Um, we have uh, 90,000 participants who had social security numbers and whom we are able to complete the linkage. Although obviously the exact number of women each year varies somewhat. Um, of the 90,000 with social security numbers, um, you know, 70,000 of those have a linkage with the Part A, um, similar number Part B. Um, and then, um, you know, similar to national statistics, roughly half of them um, also have, um, we were able to do the linkage for the Part D data as well. Um, so quite, you know, now extensive information on health utilization and health services, you know, as well as uh, treatment um, in, you know, quite a large group of women. Um, so the, the two aspects of this that I will show you now, some of our early work. Um, so our, our goal is both to use the claims data to do health services research in the cohort. Um, so we now have the interplay of, you know, life, lifestyle, behaviors, you know, a whole a range of preventive services um, and, and health information with the, the claims data on their utilization and costs. Um, so this really should allow tremendous expansion into health services research. Um, addition, there just is, you know, in, a, in such a large study with mailed questionnaires, there's a certain level of detail that we just will never be able to get from the women. Um, and I think in particular for, for cancer survival, our work has been greatly hindered. We've done some work on, on you know, cancer-specific mortality, but we've, really, we've never had treatment information. Um, you know, and, and lots of information about procedures and complications um, that has made it pretty challenging for us to do a lot of work in cancer survival. Um, but with the claims data and all of the information on treatments and procedures, um, we really should have the ability going forward um, to, you know, really open up a lot of research into cancer survival. Um, and again, with that combination of individualized information on the women's health and lifestyle with the, you know, specific information on cancer treatments and procedures, um, it, it is, a, you know, quite a unique resource um, for future research. Um, so this is just some of the work, you know, as you know, there's always lots of bureaucracy, it's, so it's only about a year ago we actually completed the linkage. Um, so for the past year, we've been doing some of the um, groundwork, which will enable a lot more research to be done. Um, so this is work that's been led by Nirav Karpatia, um, where we're just starting to take a look. Um, so TDI not only lets us link our specific participants, but there's a 20% um, representative sample of the U.S. population, so we also can try to understand how our nurses may utilize care similarly or differently from the general population. So that's some of the initial work that we've been doing. Um, so this is, um, you know, just a, a sample of characteristics of the women in our cohort. Um, this is only based on the most recent data, so this is 2012. So there were about 50,000 women who had claims data in 2012 in our cohort. Um, and then we compare those women to, um, so this is the um, sort of general Medicare population. Um, so, you know, there are there are certainly some differences. Um, the age distribution is actually quite similar in our subjects and in the general population. Um, our participants are somewhat more white, um, completely by virtue of the sort of racial distribution of nurses in the 1970s. We did invite all nurses, but you know the, the vast majority of nurses in the 1970s um, were white. So our cohort is you know virtually all white. Um, Again, as you would expect, you know, our population is, you know, professional working women. Um, so median income is a little bit higher than the general population. Um, you know, although I have to say in some ways not, not quite as different as you might have expected. 
Um, we also uh, used the Alex Hauser score and looked at um, sort of mean comorbidity count, um, which again, although you know this does the score is slightly lower in the nurses, indicating they're slightly healthier, um, but certainly not you know incredibly healthier. And you know just to give a sense, besides the means, so this is the percent of women in our cohort as well as in the general population um, who had a score of zero. Um, so no comorbidities. So that's you know twenty five percent of our cohort, um, and actually, and twenty eight percent of the general population. So actually, even a touch lower in our cohort. Um, and just to look at a few specific comorbidities, some of the most common ones: um, hypertension. So in two thousand twelve, fifty nine percent of our population had evidence of hypertension, and fifty seven percent of the general population. Some of these may be diagnostic differences. Um, our participants are probably more likely to be, you know, diagnosed and treated by the healthcare system than the general population. Um, we have seen across our cohort that, that diabetes is slightly lower than the general population. So here, 20% in our cohort versus 25% in the general population. Um, and we do know that the average BMI in our participants is somewhat lower than the general population. Um, and this is mortality in 2012. So, you know, in our cohort, the number of women who died that year was 3.4%. Um, and again, slightly higher in the general population, indicating that our cohort is somewhat healthier than a general population. Um, not certainly not unexpected. Um, it would actually be kind of sad if health professionals didn't have better health than the general population. You know, although potentially not as big difference as you might have anticipated. Um, so we've, we've just started generating some of the, the data to look at healthcare utilization in the nurses versus the general population. Um, so I just have kind of two quick slides on that. This is not actually, so here, you know, when we're looking at healthcare utilization, we did want to take into consideration some of the differences between the nurses and the general population and be sure that, you know, we're sort of comparing apples to apples instead of apples to oranges. Um, so we did um, look at a subset of the general population matched by, you know, certain specific characteristics, for example, age. Um, we also looked at region because we know that healthcare practices vary by region. Um, so we did try to select out a sample of the general population that had, you know, somewhat similar characteristics to our nurses. Um, and then we looked at um, how many women had had a mammography in that year, and then, you know, as another sample, how many had had a DEXA for screening. Um, so this shows, you know, just so in, in the nurses, a little over 50% had had a mammography in the previous year. Um, in the general population, it was closer to 40%. Um, so roughly a 10% difference in um, the prevalence of mammography in the previous year, comparing the nurses to the general population. Um, and similarly for DEXA, um, it was about 17% of the nurses um, compared to about 15% of the general population. Uh, but again, I think a you know, sort of consistent pattern that although the nurses are utilizing um, screening procedures more than the general population, you know, it's not orders of magnitude more. Um, and then we also looked at um, spending in the nurses compared to that matched general population. So we looked at um, total Medicare spending. We also looked at, at Part B spending. Um, and again, you know, fairly similar. So the nurses are, um, do have more total spending on healthcare um, than the general population does. Um, and I guess sort of up for interpretation, you know, how meaningful these differences are. Um, but I think that probably general message is that, you know, healthcare utilization and costs are not identical in nurses and the general population. Um, and as we develop hypotheses to test in the health services arena, um, it'll probably just be important to take this into consideration in deciding, you know, which research will probably be more meaningful to do. Um, and then in other research and helping interpret the findings, you know, in light of somewhat different um, utilization and spending patterns in the nurses. Um, I am going to 
give you an example of a project we did recently complete, um, you know, again, really strictly in the health services arena. Um, but, you know, it was a question that was formulated in a way where it didn't matter that nurses may be different from the general population. Um, so this has nothing to do with cancer, but it is the only project we have currently completed. Um, so I'm just going to show you know, a little bit of, of those data to give you a sense um, of how the cohort can be used in combination with claims data um, to answer a really important question in health services and utilization. Um, so we do have a subset of nurses, um, specifically the oldest nurses. Um, since the late 1990s, we've been doing telephone-administered um, neuropsych batteries. So we have been tracking their cognitive function over time. Um, so we took advantage of this detailed information we have in the subset of nurses in terms of their cognitive function um, to answer the question, of whether healthcare utilization and spending may differ according to even, you know, along the spectrum of cognitive function. Um, so research had been done in this field specifically looking at people, you know, once they have diagnosed dementia, um, and how does their healthcare differ from people who don't have dementia. Um, but there's increasing interest in the field of sort of the spectrum of cognitive function, that dementia just represents really an extreme state. And there's lots of health issues, you know, way before people have clinically evident dementia. Um, but no way, given that most of this research has been done just using claims data, um, no way to, to identify women who are, you know, pre-dementia. So we were able to take advantage of the cognitive data data in the nurses to try to look at the whole spectrum of cognitive status and see how that might impact healthcare utilization and spending. Um, so again, this is just a subset of the population who have the cognitive testing. So this included about 8,000 of our participants. Um, again, we only do it in the oldest nurses. Um, so the mean age of the cognitive substudy is um, into their early 80s. Um, again, the cohort is about 98% white. Um, and the, um, you know, this is sort of a sense of their health status. Um, so here was, we first looked at, um, so annual expenditures um, using the Medicare claims according to cognitive impairment. So we looked at the women with the worst 10% of cognitive function compared to the women in our cohort with the best 90%. Um, and we looked at, you know, a variety of different um, healthcare utilization and spending. Um, so we also, we looked at this in three different ways. So these white bars represent their overall cognitive function. So it's an average of all the cognitive tests in our battery. Um, but we also have a few different specific cognitive systems that we looked at. Um, so we specifically looked at um, the black bars or tests of executive function. Um, and executive function is your ability to organize information in your head and make decisions. Um, and then we also looked at episodic or verbal memory, which is a, more of a sort of strict, you know, how well do you remember? Um, in this case, it's word lists. And if someone tells you something, can you remember it a few minutes later? Um, so, you know, sort of a little more classic memory, again, versus the executive function. So it's your, your ability to carry out things that you're thinking about. Um, and here's where we saw some really interesting findings. So first, overall, you know, so these are, this represents spending um, in the women who have poor cognitive function versus better cognitive function. Um, and you do see almost consistently across the board that those with poor cognitive function do have higher spending than the women with better cognitive function. Um, although it was a really interesting finding that what's sticking out is... I can't get this to work. Um, you know, the black bars are where you're really seeing disproportionate differences in spending, um, which has a really interesting intervention message. So it's primarily women with poor executive function that are having higher healthcare spending costs. Um, and it is well known that, you know, problems in executive function translate into issues such as not taking your medications um, because, you know, you're not able to 
um, you know, sort of organize for yourself what medications to take and when to take them. Um, so, you know, it has been shown that people who have executive function and impairment, you know, tend to be worse at treating their, their own diseases and sort of self-health care. Um, so the fact that you're seeing specifically the the women with executive function impairments having worse health care spending suggested if you were able to intervene and, and help those women, um, you know, take their medications and manage their complications, you could actually, you know, decrease this excess in spending. Um, and, you know, additional evidence of that is also that, um, you know, you actually see um, you know, over here on, you know, this is outpatient physician visits, um, that the women with worse cognitive function have less um, physician visits. Um, and that, you know, the more of the spending is on this inpatient side. Um, you know, again, indicating that they are um, not getting their basic care from PCPs and ending up with more complications and hospitalizations. Um, so, so, yeah. Please don't understand the slide. Please yeah. So yes. Okay. So it's a com so we looked at the women with impairment and looked at their spending in the past year um, and compared that to the women in, who did not have impairment. So these are just mean differences in spending. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so, so that slide really focused on the worst 10% of the population. Um, you know, as I said, we had a specific interest in, you know, the whole distribution. Um, so this is now dividing our women up according to um, deciles of cognitive function. So um, the, um, the bottom group here represents the 10% of the population with the best cognitive function, you know, up to the 10% with the worst cognitive function. Um, and again, uh, just focusing on executive function where we saw um, the strongest results, um, a fairly linear relationship really indicating, so again, starting with just a, this second decile here. So these are women who, you know, they're in the 20% the best cognitive function in our population. Um, you already see statistically significant increases in um, in their Medicare spending. Um, so, you know, they really are becoming, they have sort of a, a burden to the healthcare system way before they have anything close to clinically significant cognitive impairment. Um, so again, suggesting that, you know, if we are going to intervene to try to decrease costs, um, you, you have to identify people very early on. And then if you wait until there's clinical signs of cognitive impairment, um, you're, you're really only going to get to the tip of the iceberg. Um, so this, this again, is a way, you know, by making the comparisons here only within our participants, um, there's less concern about whether or not, um, you know, their healthcare utilization is general, generalizable to other people. Um, presumably, differences within the nurses, just according to their cognitive status, should be less implicated by any differences in healthcare utilization than the general population may have. Um, so there certainly are, you know, a wide variety of questions we can answer um, despite nurses having somewhat different health care. Um, I only have like two slides left. Um, so we also are doing some cancer-specific work. Um, this is now using the claims more for, you know, diagnosis. Um, so we are seeing how we can use the claims. Um, in our particular instance, it could be to supplement the self-reports of cancer. Um, we do lose women to follow-up, and obviously you're most concerned that sick women are the ones you're losing to follow-up, and so we would miss cancer diagnoses in those women. Um, so we did a literature search and identified some published algorithms and how to use claims data to identify incidence cancer cases. And here we focused on breast, colorectal, and lung cancers for a start. Um, and the, the algorithms use the claims data to identify variables such as cancer complications, cancer therapy, and also the um, you know, biopsy as well as ICD codes. Um, so there are established algorithms to use that information to identify incident cancers. 
Um, so, you know, just to give you a sense of the sample sizes, um, so we did this within, you know, one two-year follow-up period in our cohort. Um, we did 2008 to 2010. Um, and in that period, within the nurses, we, we knew we had 450 incident breast cancers, 150 incident colorectal cancers, and 250 incident lung cancers. Um, so that was a sample we had to compare what you would independently find if you were looking for those um, incident cancers just using claims data. Um, so, you know, again, this is just um, a brief summary of the results. So, um, among other things, we looked at sensitivity and specificity of just using the claims data versus using the, you know, sort of confirmed information that we had from our cohort. Um, and it did vary somewhat across the different types of cancers. Um, breast cancer, the claims, you know, really did a, a, a beautiful job with 93% sensitivity um, and 99% specificity. Um, comparing claims, identification of incident breast cancer um, with, with our identification from the women themselves. Um, colorectal cancer, we had a little lower sensitivity, 77% um, with 99% specificity. Um, and for lung cancer, about 84% sensitivity, um, and again, 99% specificity. And some of the variation could also be due to the varying sample sizes. We had the smallest sample size for colorectal cancer. Um, but in general, um, that the data do show that you know we, we can validly use claims um, in our case to supplement the women's reports, um, but perhaps in other cohorts where they don't contact participants as much, you could use claims data you know to do all of your follow up, and it certainly would be less expensive um, than contacting every individual participant regularly. Um, so just to summarize then, um, the, the Nurses Health Study is a large cohort of women with information over the last 40 decades on their lifestyle and health. Um, we also have you know, lots of biospecimens from the women, and most recently we now have the claims data, um, which you know, really will open up many new avenues for research. Um, and in particular, um, I think there are tremendous opportunities not only to improve the cancer prevention work we've done, um, but really now to initiate substantial research on cancer survival by having the claims data. Um, and, and, you know, I think with, with some care about the hypotheses we test, um, there are also a lot of opportunities to better understand cancer and help care utilization. Thank you very much. Thank you.